courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Who are you? Bond. James Bond. My name's Bond. James Bond. My name is Bond. My name's Bond. James Bond. My name is Bond. Bond? Bond. James Bond. Can I help you? Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. 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 Who are you? Bond. James Bond. Bond. The name's Bond. James Bond. 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 The name's Bond. James Bond. The name's Bond. James Bond. 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 James. Welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Dario Linares. So this second episode of the new season, we are taking on a, a beer moth of film culture, James Bond. Now, Bond is not a, a subject we've covered before on the podcast. To be honest, we haven't talked that much about it except maybe in the context of thinking about franchise cinema or really the effect of the pandemic when when one of the big movies was put back. And I was thinking about it because it was odd for me because Bond, perhaps more than any other genre, property or character, was influential to my childhood relationship to cinema. My grandfather was a big Connery fan and Bond movies were huge events when they when they came out and also when they were available on the three TV channels, which uh, we had back then in the 80s. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've become more ambivalent about Bond, both from a cinematic and a thematic standpoint. The coolness and allure is kind of giving way to a sense that this is a character out of time. And Daniel Craig's Bond maybe has or obviously has really tried to attempt to play on that a little bit. But the character in the earlier films still holds, uh, you know, very strong nostalgic pleasures for me. And in many ways offers up interesting prompts for conversation in, in many ways. And because of this, I've been thinking about a way of a way to get into talking about Bond on the podcast that isn't just an obvious you know, what's your favorite Bond movie or what does it mean in contemporary culture? And today's guest is undoubtedly going to provide that. He is David Lowbridge Ellis, the creator and editor of LicensedToQueer.com. Now, this is a fan project that engages with Bond in many forms and on many different platforms, essentially looking at all things 007 through a queer lens. So, David, welcome to The Cinematologist. Thanks for coming on. It's a real pleasure to be here. I, I know you're a teacher and, uh, you know, you must be going through, you know, interesting times, let's say, in terms of uh, being a teacher in Tory Britain 2022. It's been a long day, let's put it this way. I'm glad this is an audio-only podcast and no video because I have bags under my eyes like nobody's business. <laughs> so thank you for that small mercy. Yeah, so um, in the day job, I, uh, I've, been, um, I've been teaching for nearly 20 years in secondary schools predominantly, occasionally primary, uh, supporting them. So I, I work across the multi-academy trust um help you know kind of leading those making sure they improve i'm called a director of school improvement which is a relatively kind of new thing in education but yeah so my background's in um educational leadership and management for the last 20 years uh, but before then i did a degree in english language and literature so that's kind of my academic foundations did you sort of teach english first of all or was it always a kind of pedagogic practice type of role that you've done yeah, no, I taught. I, I mean, I, I taught until, you know, the last year and a half, really. I had classes on my own, perhaps even more recently than that. I had classes on my own teaching English. I've also taught, which is, of course, pertinent today, I've also taught film studies, although I have, and this is, you know, this is where you decide I'm not going to carry on this interview. I have no form of qualifications in film whatsoever. It is purely passion that drives all of my interest in film. But the fact that I've, I ended up teaching A-level film studies for about eight years, years um was was just born of my interest in film which goes back even longer 
Uh, don't worry, everybody's moonlighting in some way. You know, it doesn't. It, you know, I'm I'm now um, I'm teaching on a degree that is purely practice, and I haven't picked up a camera in in a kind of professional sense in my entire life. So I'm completely moonlighting in my job. Also, I think I think that's healthy in a way, and I'm sure we'll get into this because <laughs> yeah. the licensed to queer project that that I created two and a half years ago, I wanted it to be multidisciplinary right from the beginning. Because although I've got, you know, qualifications in language and literature and a passion in film, I'm just so interested in so many different academic disciplines that I thought right. why why limit myself to just what's in my comfort zone? Sure. And and like, you know, we'll definitely get into the weeds on the kind of, um, I mean, you called it quasi-academic in your presentation, but it definitely isn't quasi. It's academic the way that you you talk about Bond through the queer lens. And obviously that, that'll be key to our conversation. But I just want, one thing that really kind of was interesting to me when we set this interview up, and again, you know, if this is too weird and personal to start an interview off, then then please tell me so. But going to school in the 80s, the idea of a, you know, a, an out teacher was just unheard of, you know what I mean? I mean, is that something now that is just normalized and par for the course in, in sort of secondary schools these days? I wouldn't say it's normalized. I would say it's supported. I, I've actually done quite a few programs for the Department for Education because... Uh, on on this exact topic i've even run whole day courses that have been funded by the department for education to try and make schools more inclusive and specifically to help teachers and school leaders uh, because if you get p- people who are, are queer openly queer identifying into leadership positions you then can kind of help change the culture of the school um so i've done lots of those programs and i also mentor and coach people to get queer people to get into senior leadership positions so it's not normal it's still it's not unheard of and what i would just say is because i could talk about this all day and i know we've got james bond to get to but it, it, it is something um which varies more between schools so some schools you'll have none and some schools you'll have a couple and some schools you'll have loads you know proportional to the population or even more you know a greater proportion than the population so it's very much the culture that's been set by the individual schools so yeah i mean i suppose it does sort of link with what i've been doing with james bond because i wanted to make a a space that queer people would who like james bond would feel really comfortable in which i which basically wasn't there so what i I, what i learned from doing that in education i've perhaps transposed into the james bond online queer space yeah no it's, it's just fascinating to 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 hear that and um i think it's it's just such important work really i mean at at higher education i don't know again i you know there's probably data about out there about this but it's maybe there's less of a specific need for for direct work in that area maybe at university maybe that's wrong though i think you're exactly right and i think we'll i think probably in secondary schools i've talked and written extensively about um the impact of this i wrote a chapter for a book that was released almost exactly a year ago actually by routledge uh, which was on the everyday lives of gay men and i did it as um, a day a day in the life basically of a gay teacher um and the, the amount of times that you're kind of very conscious of being an out gay teacher and I, we're living very much with the legacy of Section 28 still, which although repealed uh, 19 years ago, um, ha- has cast a really long shadow. And a lot of lead school head teachers I work with, a lot of it is making, just make, giving them the facts about, you know, it is fine for your staff to be out. You can support them by doing this. But that knowledge is percolating through, but it, it's taking an awfully long time. Right. Right. No, that's uh, it's fascinating stuff, and uh, yeah, really interesting to 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 hear that. I think you've made your point, Goldfinger. Thank you for the demonstration. Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond. It may be your last. The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night, Mr. Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. There is nothing you can talk to me about that I don't already know. 
So, you know, your your cinematic life then. I mean, obviously Bond is huge within that, but would you say that it's it's Bond first rather than cinema, as it were? Or has Bond come out of your love of, of a wider array of films? I think I enjoyed Bond before cinema more broadly. So I think I saw my first Bond film when I was about six years old. It was always kind of a family thing. My dad had read the Fleming books as a kid and I've still got some of his paperbacks upstairs. And uh, my grandparents, I think it was when they were taking care of me uh, and, and my sibling uh, one weekends if my parents had gone out for the night and I think Goldfinger was on TV and it was I I do have memories of watching it on a tiny screen on ITV so I think the bug bit when I was about six um cinema itself didn't really bite until my late teens um and I, I think it was my friends uh, particularly my friend John who's a real cineast and uh, um he, we we started watching a lot more kind of adventurous movies a lot more subtitled cinema a lot more uh, a lot of more old, older films and then I think I got hold of a copy of Empire magazine when I was about 16 and they'd done a top 100 movies and I thought right I'm going to educate myself on cinema. So, you know, there's, I'm sure there's all sorts of problems with the Empire Top 100 being seen as the canon. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's certainly not going to be representative of cinema as a whole. But as a 16-year-old, I didn't know that. So I, I worked my way through the entire 100 within a few years, except for Greece. For some reason... <laughs> Greece was one of the top 100 and for some reason perhaps internalized homophobia I didn't watch Greece until I was in my mid-30s so um, that was the one I thought I've got to keep one on the list that I haven't watched maybe that was kind of in my head as well but yeah so I watched all of these and you know and that's really when I started watching a lot of the the films of the 70s and 80s that you know the, uh, the late 60s so basically that wave of uh, filmmaking um, emboldened by uh, French New Wave and all that stuff. So um, yeah, the Easy Riders, ra- Raging Bull, sort of, sort of canon, really. Um, and yeah, it just went from there, really. Yeah, I, I kind of go full circle on lists. I mean, the Empire Top 100 is going to be very different to the Sight and Sound Top 100, which I've just kind of filled in my top 10 for that. Most but, definitely, But yeah. to be honest with you, if, if anything that gets you into a sort of sense of, uh, you know, a wider vocabulary of cinema, I think that's that's what lists can be really good yeah. for. And, you know, none of them really pertain to a, a definitive nature of what, what film should be. You know, they're all subjective in that in that sense. So do you, do you subscribe to this idea that... The, your true bond is the first one that you watch um, on a personal level, you know? I'm not sure, to be perfectly honest. At least you didn't ask me who's my favourite bond. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that <laughs> well, that's the next question, isn't it? wasn't it? <laughs> no, no. Um, no, no, no. I mean, it's we a, can get there. It's a good, it's a good way of asking. <laughs> um, my, my answer to the favourite bond is always the one I'm watching at that time, uh, which is my diplomatic okay. answer. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I'm, yeah. I reckon I did see Sean Connery, although I. I think I saw Roger Moore more. Uh, that's not a confusing sentence at all. When I was growing up, because for some reason it seemed like The Spy Who Loved Me was just on telly every other week on ITV. <laughs> and I don't know why that one just stuck in yeah, my head yeah. more. And I think it's probably because it is kind of a more child-friendly film than some the first two Roger Moore movies. So I think ITV did have it on heavier rotation. And it is a film that is pretty much universally adored in, in the Bond community. So I think that's the reason. But the Roger Moore films really stuck in my head. When you say the words James Bond, probably my first association is Roger Moore. So I don't know whether that kind of supports the theory or shoots it down, really. Yeah, I mean, I think the the notion of a favourite Bond is a difficult one, but definitely the one that informed who I thought Bond was for a long time was you know was Roger Moore and then when I discovered there was an earlier one and not just one earlier one like two ones who came before and yeah it kind of blows your mind then you're you're kind of there's this whole whole other parallel life of a character that you just specifically identify with one with one actor which is kind of strange when you're young you know I think you're not including David Niven from 1967's Casino Royale. Well, the thing is, I, you know, at a young <laughs> age, I don't think I would have even sort of recognised no. that. 
I would not inflict that film on. Um, although I watched it as a kid, and it didn't do me any harm. No. Uh, it's. It, I, I do sort of love that film. There's actually. Um, there's actually a really good book um, called because I hate it when people talk about James Bond and canon and continuity. I'm just like, there is no canon. There is no continuity. There's just there. Are, um, um, there's a really good book called the James Bond Lexicon, and they uh, delineated 28 different James Bonds in the canon. You know, so you've got the six main actors, and then but that. You know they're playing actually two different types of jokes. It gets really kind of timey wimey and complicated. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I remember watching a or oh, I can't remember if it was a podcast actually or a documentary where they were talking about the the reboot dynamics of. Daniel Craig in the context of Bond as a historical figure. And it was like, I think his argument was all of the other actors were essentially playing the same character that you are supposed to, in a dream logic sense, envisage as just going on one mission after another. Whereas Daniel Craig is is actually a reboot. I mean, I don't know whether you agree with that or... It is sort of a reboot. And without going into too many kind of specifics and boring people to death, they did rewrite the official biography. So when the Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace Daniel Craig was a, was actually an ex-member of the SAS, not the Royal Navy. So they changed details like that. But then by Skyfall, they put him back in the Navy. So it was like it snapped back. My, my, my view on Bond, and I always use this analogy, is it's like a palimpsest. So you've got the the first version of Bond and then, you know, the Fleming version and then you've got the f- the film versions. That, but every time you kind of rub out the previous version, but you can still see some of it showing through. And I think all of the best versions of Bond are kind of that blend of all the Bonds sure, that have sure. come before. Yeah. So so the, the sort of fundamental driving force to your project you know, this sort of self-reflexive question that if you asked to, again, you know, we, we talked about this before we came on the mics about, you know, we've got one person talking from a, um, a queer perspective, one person talking from a straight perspective. And like that conversation then becomes how does a character appeal to you from those two perspectives? And it's, you know, I I would, I would naturally sort of take for granted what I think the elements or the formula of Bond is that's appealing. But then, you know, your, when I watched your presentation um, that you gave in London, London, you 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 kicked it off with this self-reflexive self-reflexive question why does bond appeal to me so much as a a gay slash queer viewer you know you were asking yourself that and thinking then are there other people like me out there who, who like bond so what what was it then say for example from six years old where you think this is i love this this is this is great when it's like a straight guy with you know womanizing and shooting people and all of that kind of stuff uh, you know, there's no monopoly on going around shooting people. You know, that's you know, um, <laughs> not straight people aren't gonna you know just be, just to be the people doing. It. It's interesting. You started off by talking about you felt ambivalent about Bond, and I I wrote I wrote that down because I thought I've got to come back to that. And I think ambivalence about Bond is the healthiest way of thinking about Bond because there are obviously unhealthy dimensions to Bond and you do say James Bond to some people and they just think sexist, misogynist, dinosaur, racist, homophobic, all that. And yes, there is an, there's a, that's a valid argument in many ways. But and, and I've had that kind of ambivalence in my head pretty much, you know, because I, I knew I was different, even if I didn't know the word gay, from around the same time I saw a James Bond movie. So those two things have been a part of my identity for, what, 35, nearly 35 years? (laughs) So they've been kind of at battle in my head all this time. So that's why I started two and a half years ago by posing that question, why does James Bond appeal to LGBTQ plus people? And as I said in the presentation, my real question was, actually, does it? Or is it just me? Am I weird? Am I the self-hating kind of person who just wants to love something that doesn't love them back? Is it that? Unfortunately, no. So we answered that question and, you know, uh, there are lots there are lots of queer Bond fans out there and we know each other a bit better now, lots of us. But the why, there are multiple answers to this. Before I kind of embark, why, why do you like James Bond? Well, Sorry to I turn mean, the table. No, no, that's totally fine. I think looking back, formative years of cinema a lot of that is essentially looking for role models really and like and like not, not just role models in the sense of the, the specifics of the character itself it's the the role models of what an, what an exciting and unusual and glamorous and an interesting life looks like and 
I, as I got old, the, the, the ambivalence towards Bond is both from a perspective of all of those things you said about, well, this is a really problematic character in many ways. But even more than that, it is the the sense in which there is, these are just formulaic films that do the same thing over and over again. And, you know, I became much more pretentious <laughs> when I became an academic. And it's like, well, you know, highbrow art is about... Uh, uh, it, innovativeness and uniqueness and you know not something that's expositional and not formulaic and abstract and and difficult to you know difficult to understand and ambiguous and really bond isn't many of those things at all so it's kind of like but but then i still have that that 14 year old kid who you know who wants to drive an aston martin is still buried deep down inside so it's still there in some in some ways which i'll never get rid of you know I think a lot of us have got that, regardless of whether we're queer or not. But particularly if we are queer, I think there there is obviously an escapist element for everybody watching a Bond film. The fact that, until recently anyway, they all ended happily, so there was the possibility of a happy ending. But also, I think Bond himself is not a particularly heteronormative character, in the sense that he's very unlikely to settle down with a single person in a monogamous relationship yes a woman anyway um anytime soon or anyone for that matter but you know he's always presented as being with lots of women and if he does find the one then it doesn't end well <laughs> ever uh <laughs> you know tragic loves of 007 um and I think perhaps there are the lifestyle elements, and I know a lot of people find that a draw, but most queer people actually, it's not that that's necessarily the draw. It's because, and I'm 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 wary that I'm, you know, on from my licensed queer platform, I feel a certain sense of responsibility to say I'm not talking for all queer people because everyone's experience is different. But there are about 20 people who have substantially contributed to the website and dozens more who've done um, bits here and there and added to particular articles. And the kind of commonality among them is that identities in the world of Bond are constantly in flux. And there is a, there's a sense of other possibilities being presented. And a lot of that is not there on the surface, admittedly. You have to go digging for it a little bit. But like you said, you know, I love, I'm sure you, uh, I'm not going to kind of state my credentials for, you know, I watch really uh, obscure and start listing off uh, silent film directors from the 1920s. But I do, I, I, you know, I, I do have a, I do have a decent grounding in fil film history, but I, I think I'm kind of getting the same sort of satisfaction that I get from watching more obscure and ambiguous movies nowadays by kind of bringing ambiguity, more ambiguity into the world of Bond. And I think it's quite satisfying because it's such a mainstream product. And I hate that word. I hate it when people start using the word franchise around film because I really, you know, obviously film is always a mix of art and commerce, but I hate that term. So I prefer the world of Bond. But, you know, Bond is a big franchise. It's, you know, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all that kind of stuff. And that's why it's kind of more satisfying because in a sense we we get to take something I, I suppose there's there's a degree of rebelliousness of I, an iconoclasm going on here because james bond is this monolithic cultural figure particularly in british culture and um, so it's kind of fun to show people a different side so yeah but in terms of queer people themselves i think it's because bond is you know kingsley amis said and various other people have said that bond is a bit like a blank slate himself so that tabula rasa quality, I think a lot of us are really able, regardless of whether we're gay or whatever, but particularly if we're gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, etc., we can project ourselves onto the character quite easily compared with a lot of other fictional characters. What's happened? Where are you going? Sorry, darling, something came up. But James, I need you. So does England. He has just left. He has just left. Over and out. Message received. We are waiting. Over and out.
I think that also sort of lines up as well with some of the. I mean, we can talk about Roger Moore films all day, but even in the other films, there are there are little um, pointers and symbolic moments and icons that are. You know, I mean, to be honest with you, you don't really need to be you know trained with the queer gaze to within an inch of your life to, to understand that what is being said here you know but like again as a as a teenager you know i i i, I wouldn't have got any of that because i was brought up like you know what does it mean to be brought up straight but i just feel like i was not exposed to you know <laughs> any kind of you know gay culture as a as a teenager very much at Neither all was yeah. I. <laughs> but, yeah well okay yeah but it's it's funny isn't it that that do you 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 look back? I mean, it's like looking back at Top Gun. When I went to university and and I re- read the article that said Top Gun Gun is the gayest movie of all time, and I went back and watched it. it was like shit, yeah, it is. You know what I mean? It is. It, I do find it that irony that most of the kind of um, hetero American movies of the eighties and nineties are like super sure. gay. Yeah, yeah. They really are. <laughs> like, how did we not see this at the time? I mean, when I watched Top Gun on TV in the nineties, it was like, yes, I do find Tom Cruise quite attractive and it might be nice to join the Air Force. <laughs> but, but I didn't kind of understand how to read a text um, it, it, as as a homoerotic text. I think there was an instinctive element of that. But I, I didn't grow up around gay culture either. I mean, there, were, there was obviously gay cinema, you know, uh, although what kind of teenager is going to have easy access to the films of Derek Jarman? And, uh, you know, even like uh, I was well, I was three when My Beautiful Laundrette was released. Um, is those sorts of, you know, milestones in British film culture. They, they were obviously quite high certificate in terms of rating and, you know, what kind of closeted gay kid is going to ask their parents to get a gay film from the video shop or the library yeah, or yeah, wherever. Yeah. I guess, though, that what I'm saying is that, that even back in the 80s, there were subcultural avenues, you know, where you could... I mean, and, and it could be through music rather than film, but, uh, you know, film was involved. And if you happen to be in the right, in, you know, in the right area or the right situation or knew the right person, you could be introduced to that perhaps. And I think probably maybe you're the same as me where it was like, no, all I had was mainstream stuff to, to work with, you know what I mean? In terms of forming identity, you know? That's it. So we, we kind of, I mean, the first, I can't even remember, um, the uh, besides seeing Winton Kidd in Diamonds Are Forever aged about seven or eight, I can't actually remember, I don't think I got that Rosa Klebb was supposed to be a lesbian in From Russia With Love. Apart from those, I don't think I actually saw a gay person on screen at least present in fiction at least and if it was ever non-fiction if it was on the news it was always a very negative portrayal um, particularly with the AIDS crisis and everything else um, I don't think I saw any fictional representations of a, of a gay person until I was in my mid to late teens I'm probably forgetting things but I just can't remember anything so there was there was just no way of us you know obviously nowadays you know and i feel incredibly um it's brilliant that kids nowadays have all this great stuff like heartstopper and uh, um films like love simon and which which have really positive portrayals because they presented an alternative narrative rather than you said you know you know, you don't remember growing up straight because you were part of the dominant narrative and we we like gay kids went down the dominant narrative as well but it never fit and that's why you know that's why that's why we always kind of felt left out in a way but yeah i mean going back and reappraising things that in hindsight are pretty gay is is quite it's quite cathartic in some ways as well no, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about that sort of that idea of reading and even reading against the intention or whether you know the intention or not, you know, and, and that how that is a sort of the fundamental really to sort of queer methodology, you know, ac- academically in that sense. But maybe you could talk a little bit about the actual project and the website and how everything kind of expanded as soon as you realized that, you know, there were people out, out there, you know, there was a gay culture, gay community out there, queer community who were absolutely, you know, they, they really loved Bond as well. Yeah, so I'd had the idea in some form in my head for years and years because as I've been watching Bond films and, as a, a, you know, I've been uh, out as gay for the last four, 14 years and then really kind of did a deep dive into gay cinema and gay culture in general, almost kind of like trying to make up for lost time. Um, and 
I thought, and because of all of that, I was starting to see things that I saw in, you know, more obscure gay cinema, independent film. I was starting to see similarities with James Bond. And so all of these things have been going around in my head. But long story short, COVID happened even though we were working really long work hours in education uh, and a lot of a lot of us found it really hard to switch off when we were at home we couldn't go anywhere at weekends so i started writing some of the stuff that writing down some of the stuff that was in my head i produced four or five pieces before kind of making it public i bought the domain license to queer uh, started the social media accounts and within about a week i'd got a few hundred followers already so I thought, oh, they're the early adopters. You know, they're the people who, you know, are actively looking for um, queer readings of James Bond. It wasn't just um, it wasn't just queer identifying people. I have to say the James Bond online community is far more welcoming than a lot of online film communities are uh, for particularly for, for mainstream titles. Um, there's, I've only ever had a hand, small handful of kind of um, altercations online or people saying things, you know, they get blocked and whatever. They are very few and far between. And um, as I say, now lockdowns have actually ended and everything, hopefully, fingers crossed. I've actually met, got to meet a lot of people who, you know, we got to know each other online, um, actually meet them in person. So, so that was really good. Um, and the, the great thing is, I put it out there right from the start. I don't just want this to be me. I th- you know, I am a gay identifying man who is cisgendered-ish. <laughs> I always kind of say, you know, I'm kind of still kind of working that kind of stuff out. But I wanted the whole queer spectrum represented because genuinely I wanted to know other people's perspectives whether um, um, lesbians viewed Bond differently from trans people, from bisexual people, from asexual people, non-binary people. So I was seeing it as a learning experience for myself. So it's really nice that so many people have wanted to share their stories. So that's kind of where it's where it started, and now it's we're about to go over three thousand followers on Twitter, and I can't remember how many on Instagram, and the website gets a lot of hits and all that sort of stuff. If you want to kind of view it in metric terms, but the great the greatest part of it is that there is this there is this community that's really just grown really organically. We've never paid for advertising, we've never monetized anything or whatever. It's just people who are interested in Bond, who some of them are queer and some a lot of them are straight, and they just want to read a different point of view so yeah that's where we've got to really is the main content then reflexive blogs or articles where people are are exploring their own relationship to the property or is it is that stuff as well that's more aspiring towards objective type criticism or even academic type criticism and i think you said on on the uh, on your presentation that you do put you podcast now as well yeah there's a podcast so again it's grown organically and it's kind of morphed it started my original idea was to do a extended essay on each of the films and I've done two thirds of the film so far. I've kind of slowed down because every time I write one, they kind of get longer (laughs) and we find more to say about those films. And particularly because other people have become part of that conversation and that enriches it. So in a sense, some of them, and I always make sure I acknowledge anyone who's kind of had particular insights about that particular film. Um, In terms of the, you know, I have said quasi-academic. It has, in most pieces, it's taken more of a shift towards the academic. So everything now is Harvard, almost everything, unless it's kind of like a um, just something quite like the part piece I wrote about the Queen the other day. I slotted the references into um, into the piece, but that was something obviously I had to write quite quickly. Uh, you know, um, but the longer pieces are fully Harvard referenced, reliable sources, hopefully from more most of the time they are from actually queer academics themselves because i want to give give them a bit of a platform as well but even the early pieces i always referenced everything with hyperlinks so you could follow it up with the with the sources but the original so they're the they're the kind of backbone of the site and they range from 4000 words to 14000 words for each film so they're the backbone but then there's lots of other articles and some of the some of the people who write for the website are far more academically qualified uh, you know, I've got an undergraduate and a master's degree, but it's like some.
some of them are, are really like that they are like full-time kind of ed- academics um, but I always encourage them to write as personally as possible so um, I know autoethnography sometimes comes in for a bad rap but that's what I encourage people um, and people are actually incredibly willing to share their stories um, not everyone's as, as open and there are several articles really good pieces written by people who have, have obviously they've, they've talked to me about their identities but they have kind of gone under pseudonyms and things because they're not out to everybody um, particularly um, some trans commentators um, but really great insights from, from everyone I mean I was thinking again about talking about the idea of queer theory and queer criticism and and i'm sure you know many of our listeners will know what that is and and will have you know maybe even written in that from that perspective themselves and but i was thinking about it in terms of this project specifically and how you know the idea of an academic discipline which has a political element to it fits in with the sort of pleasures of queer queerness let's say you know if i'm if i can say that as a straight person so that sort of motivation really the idea of a combination of of the pleasure and politics of pointing towards the existence of queer lives and queer experiences and aesthetics particularly in a monolithic type of mainstream representation which a lot of people just take for granted as to what it is i mean would you agree with that sort of summation i would totally agree with that um uh, i don't want to kind of rip off the bbc here but i sort of do have an inform educate and entertain intent with license to queer it is it is a book you know i always bill it as an educational website but there's nothing there that doesn't have the odd joke in there um and hopefully very informative and it's interesting you just said about taking you know queer pleasure as a straight person um i think i think that queer theory is great to i mean you know from my understanding of queer theory and again it's completely self-taught because when i went when i did my undergraduate degree there was a module for, I think it was a literature module, which was about um, queer theory, but I was closeted at the time. So I thought, if I select this module, I will out myself. <laughs> so I wasn't prepared to select that module. Um, so everything I've learned about queer theory is self-taught. Um, but as I understand queer theory, it functions to complicate existing discourses. And I think there's a lot of fun in that, you know, just because I'm a, a um, I, I love anything that basically throws a bit of a hand grenade into existing narratives and blows it up and, you know, we can reassemble the pieces, which is, I think, what queer theory really excels at. Um, and, um, you know, I, I said right at the start of this, I said it's multidisciplinary. I, I obviously I'm really in my comfort zone writing about literature and linguistics. I, a lot of what I write, I kind of... It resembles a bit like critical discourse analysis. Um, so I'm kind of applying some of that methodology of linguistics and sociology and history and psychology, geopolitics, a lot of gender. Judith Butler comes up quite a bit writing about performativity, femin- uh, feminist theory. So it's got, and of course, film theory, which is takes a lot from literature theory and literary theory as well. So it's got all of this stuff in it. So it is pleasure because I enjoy reading about those things myself, even if they're outside my comfort zone. And other people enjoy reading them but i've always said that license to queer is political in the sense that well several things really i want people who aren't queer to get an insight into what it's like to be queer and also i want everybody to see james bond the way that i've started to increasingly see it and hopefully get pleasure from doing that but also Um, A lot of the articles have taken on sort of mental health slant as well in the last couple of, you know, no wonder during the pandemic. So there's kind of that element as well. Um, I've just recorded a podcast with a psychologist where we kind of tried to put Bond on the psychiatrist couch a bit and kind of um, help him out a little bit there. So there is an educational element to it. But yeah, it's, it's kind of that balance of all of it, really. We've been talking here about this idea of sort of queer reading but also you know you you have you've talked about the terms of a sort of you know a gay view or you know talk talk about the idea of looking from a lesbian perspective or you know a trans perspective for for that sense and you know these are interconnected identities you know again don't get me wrong very very different everybody's got their own experiences but there's a sort of interconnected way in which they are in opposition to or critical of 
their position and relationship to heteronormative society, as, you, as, as you've talked about. But are those things interconnected in a way that actually sometimes they need to be disconnected so that a specific identity can can voice their experience so what i what i mean by that you know when you say when you say oh this is a queer reading is that different from saying this is a gay reading if you see what i mean or do you not make that distinction and it's like depends who you read who you read who you read i suppose no no that totally makes sense again going back to what you said about the the being a political intent i chose the name license to queer because i thought it sounded cool but mostly mostly because that word still has a lot of power to offend people when used in a particular context but it can conversely be used to empower people so I wanted to, I mean, that term was used to bully me when I was at school. So it's kind of reclaiming that word, which has happened increasingly over a relatively short period, actually. So queer has been used increasingly. It was, I think it was glad, I think glad acknowledged in 2016, 17 as, as kind of a reclaimed term. So it's, it's only relatively recently. And I, I'm a very aware of the sensitivities around it in my education life. I do training for staff on which terms to use and a lot of staff. Uh, say I don't want to use that term because I think I'm going to offend people and I say well as long as we use it in the right context and the academic world queer is used all the time and has been done for the last three if not four decades so queer is an umbrella term yes we are wrong to assume that the experience of everyone under that umbrella is the same and particularly this has been highlight highlighted um, recently with a very small minority of gender critical gay and lesbian people being very outspoken around members of the trans members of our community so i'm also at the, i've actually been reading and writing quite a lot about about imagined communities recently and that kind of assumption that everyone in your community is of the same mindset about everything and that is totally not that is totally that is actually quite dangerous to make that assumption but at the same time when it comes to james bond in queerness and yes some of the you know the lesbian writers of the website do have a slightly different i mean two of the lesbian commentators of the website are two of um, my husband and i's best friends and you know one of them loves james bond for the guns and the action and the other one loves it uh, her wife she loves it for all of the um she likes really sad endings so she likes the daniel craig movies with all the introspection and all that kind of stuff they love they actually like different bond films separately so you've got two lesbians who are married and they have totally different tastes in bond and see different things within it so i'm always very wary of kind of taking any kind of homogenized viewpoint but there are i, I think there is what i'm trying to say is I think there's more, we have more, I know it's a cliche, but we have more in common than divides us. So particularly, I wrote an article about a year ago about the colour pink. Um, and um, it's, it's a, so it's how it was treated throughout Bond and um, all of the dimensions of that. And um, one of my trans friends who writes for the website, uh, a trans man, uh, he and I had a really interesting conversation about that. We've kind of both rehabilitated pink in our lives because I was gay and thought if I wear pink, people will know I'm gay. He was trans and he was just like, I don't want anything feminine growing up. So it's certainly when it comes to gender and stereotyping, I think that's definitely a, a bit of a glue that holds us together. That certainly seems kind of like the the way in which I think the the nuanced position of you know individuals who are looking at text and you know and through their experiences have individual responses but then you know obviously they're part of collective groups at the at the same time so it's always a complicated kind of uh, um reckoning or working through of of all of those kinds of things i think um yeah let's finish off by talking a little bit about specific queerness in bond i think you know so i mean for you do you think that there is is there a more identifiable kind of strands of queerness depending on the era and the bond like say for example you know we could say that you know roger moore was the campist of the films as it were 
But yet there's nothing as camp as, as late Connery, you know what I mean? Really, the Diamonds Are Forever is super camp. And then, you know, there's some elements of this in Brosnan. And, you know, in Craig, it's done in a very specific way, which is much more on the nose for a politically correct contemporary audience in the 21st century, perhaps. I mean, I don't know. What's your take on all of that? Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just about camping James Bond. In fact, I've already done it. But, <laughs> you know, I, and I keep, the amount of times I've cited Susan Son tag now is ludicrous to be perfectly honest so i thought she deserved her own article so i did a whole 007 notes on camp as an as an homage to uh, her 64 uh, notes she didn't want to call it an essay did she she was determined it wasn't an essay but uh, for want of a better word that 1964 essay um yeah, so, I mean, camp is a whole other kind of... Disc- I, I argue that actually the Connery films are the campest because Susan Sontag argues okay. that for it to be pure camp, it needs to be unintentional, whereas Roger Moore is kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. It's like, oh, we know yeah, this yeah, is yeah. not to be taken seriously. Whereas I think the campest image in any James Bond film is from the opening of Goldfinger with Bond in a very snugly fitting blue romper suit oh, yeah. against a yeah, clearly back-projected that. hotel fountain blur Miami Beach. <laughs> They're freezing somewhere outside of London. They're pretending to be somewhere in Miami. Um, And it's this sunlit scene that's clearly on a soundstage. And it's like, that is pure camp. So, but broadly speaking, I do think if I just kind of go from Connery to up to Craig, I think that Connery's films are far queerer than Roger Moore's films. Um, because I think they open up sexual possibilities more. And I think that was tied in with particularly Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Have Twice. That was tied in with everything to do with what was going on in the 60s in terms of sexual uh, permissiveness. And I think there is kind of a, you know, Connery is the only Bond who has a threesome. Uh, so there's, you know, inter, you know, Bond is actually pretty a one one woman man for the rest of the era, and that happens in From Russia with Love back in 1963. So I think Connery's Connery opens up those possibilities, and of course he's. Um, he's very sexually magnetic for men or women and a lot of people recognise that even at the time and the camera loves him if you want to do a you know Laura Mulvey's gaze you know um, if she ever wants to apply that to Connery in those Bond movies I'm I'm all over it and then you move in George Lazenby obviously one film so you can't really generalise from that but that was the only film to be directed by an out queer person so you can view Peter Hunt's On A Majesty's Secret Service very much through a gay lens Um, And then you go into Roger Moore and the first two films are kind of like this identity crisis. It's like, are we Connery? Are we Moore? Which is really interesting from a queer point of view. And then from Spy Love Me onwards, um, particularly Spy Love Me and Moonraker, that I I saw them, I analysed Spy Love Me only this year and it was one of the longest pieces because I got into this whole thing about it being a reaction against that wave of feminism. Uh, at that time and the the increased visibility of gay people so um, I think a lot of those films are quite reactionary and then you've kind of got the new man of the 80s so they're really interesting for gender which carries over to Timothy Dalton as well and then you've got Brosnan very performative his masculinity is very posed Um, and then you've got Craig who's the existential one he's always having some kind of um, you know internal crisis which ties in really neatly with a lot of the kind of mental crises that a lot of queer people go through so that's the potted history (laughs) so what about you know the way that um, on your website and in your community on you know in the project that there's certain characters who are who you would probably define as queer characters like specifically queer characters in the Bond movies as having a kind of cult status and I'm thinking here of Jim Fanning who's Jim Fanning (laughs) for those who don't know so okay this is a bit of an in joke that started because I wore a bow tie to work during the middle of one of the lockdowns when obviously teachers were still going into work and yeah I wore a bow tie and I looked completely knackered one night and then someone said oh it's I I wore a bow tie to work just to cheer myself up and some of the kids cheer up some of the kids and the staff Um, and then I got home my husband took a photo and someone said it must be June Fanning Friday and it kind of went a bit not viral uh, because it's still within quite a close 
Bose community, but every year several hundred of us wear a bow tie at the last February, the last Friday of February, and I don't know why Duke Panning. Even today, there's that Christie's auction going on today, and I've been tagged in so many tweets of that egg, the Fabergé egg from Octopussy being sold, and everyone's tagging me, going, "It must be Jim Fanning Friday on a Thursday," and I'm like, "What? What is going on?" So for some, the, Jim Fanning is this character who appears for less than five minutes in Octopussy um, and it's just yeah it's and he's, he's sort of a queer coded character because he's a fussy dresser and he's um, he's kind of a bit anxious around Bond and he's trying to tell Bond to stop eyeing up the women so I think that's why but a lot of straight people have taken him to their hearts as well because of what happened uh, a couple of years ago on Licensed to Queer which is nice Ah Good morning 007 Morning sir Minister Commander I think you know Jim Fanning our art expert. Yes, hello, Jim. James? Do you know what this is? Well, it looks like a Fabergé egg, sir. One of the jewel eggs made by Carl Fabergé as an Easter gift for the Russian royal family. They're priceless and, uh, and very rare. This one contains a model of the Imperial State coach. Hmm. Top marks, 007. Thank you, sir. Except it's a fake. Now, there's the real thing. It's being auctioned at Sotheby's this afternoon. This is the fourth egg to turn up at auction this year. It's from none of the usual sources. Anonymous seller, numbered Swiss bank account. I'd say that the vendor was a Russian. And now this turns up. A near-perfect forgery. I think Commander Bond should accompany you to the sale. Splendid. I could use an extra pair of eyes. Uh, perhaps we could try and spot the seller. They usually turn up out of interest or perhaps just to bump up the price. Thank you, Fanning. Not at all. And then you've got, you know, the, the a really kind of, you know, within Bond, almost a sort of revolutionary moment where you've got these two assassins who are basically in love with each other in, in Diamonds Are Forever. And there's a moment where they actually just, they kill someone and then walk away holding hands. And it's just sort of, you know, obviously really problematic because it, you know, it has this sort of air of coding psychopaths as as gay. Do you know what I mean? But, but... You know, to to have something so overt in in the Bond movies, why? Well, you know, I, even I remember going, "Oh wow, okay." Yeah, especially as it's actually a misconception that Fleming identifies Winton Kidd as gay in the novel. Uh, so it's one Felix Leiter actually suggests they are, but it's never confirmed. And to be honest, there are no actual gay or queer identifying characters in the whole of Bond. Even Ben Whishaw's Q says he's coming round but it's that's the, that's the closest we get so they are all coded but two men holding hands is a pretty sure is a pretty obvious code so yeah it was revolutionary it must have been for 1971 you know only 4 years after the partial decriminalization of homosexuality in this country and it, it, it as i said earlier it was the only time i ever remember seeing a romantic gay couple until my late teens so I do sometimes ponder, um, try, hopefully not for not for too long. I do think, oh my god, did this sort of set the template for what I thought gay existence was going to be for the rest of my life? Am I going to only be able to find a partner who goes around sticking scorpions down the back of dentists' shirts? Doctor Tynan, good evening. Who are you? And where's Joe? Joe couldn't make it tonight. I'm Mister Wint. This is Mister Kidd. Oh, I see. What's the matter with him? My wisdom teeth. I haven't had him out yet. Would you mind having a look, Doctor? Of course. I'm not going to hurt you. Just open. No, no, no. Open wide. How everyone who touches those diamonds seems to die. Hey, they were committed to each other. You've got to admit that, you know? <laughs> and that's my argument. Exactly. They love each other. Listen, David, thanks so much for letting me take up so much of your time. Just a, a couple of things to finish off. Who's your pick for the next Bond? Someone I haven't thought of. 
I hope. Okay. Although if right. I had to, if I had to, I'd go for John Boyega. Wow. Okay. Interesting one. I mean, again, you know, it, it's always, it's always, you know, this contentious point about whether how how does Bond reinvent again. You know, this is my, and it's part of my my sort of criticism or my ambivalence, let's say, of Bond. It's like, how can you reinvent again? And is the only is the kind of only way to do it in this day and age, either with a black actor or a woman or an explicitly gay Bond? But it it seems though that listening to the interviews with 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 Broccoli, that they're not going to do that. They're going to do something else. Yeah, I mean, the interviews, people latch on to the words in those interviews and extrapolate so much from them. You know, they're saying that he's he's going to be reflective of more modern modern man, which is what he's basically... Been. I mean, a misconception around Bond is that he he's, he's always so traditional. I think the Bond films themselves, even if the Bond character hasn't been, they've always been kind of in between that kind of pushing what's acceptable in wider society. Um, I keep thinking of the Overton window. If people don't know what the Overton window is, it's that, you know, it's that that policy analyst, Joseph Overton, came up with, you know, what what is acceptable politically at a given time. And over time, generally, not always, society's kind of become more accepting of ideas that were kind of a bit more radical before. And um, I think the Bond series has pushed that in some ways. So I sometimes think of, you know, we did have a female double O back in 1965, very short shot of her in Thunderball. We had a, bl- a black Bond girl in 1973, even though they knew the film was not going to be able to be shown in Southern cinemas in the US. Uh, and then we had a black double O in 2020. So they're just three examples. And I know there were a lot of people who didn't like that. But, you know, the Bond films, because they are so mainstream, by putting those things in a film, they do sort of push the Overton window. They push the envelope a little bit more. Um, and they aren't the most radical, forward-thinking movies of all time. But they're not... I don't see them as regressive either. See what she's done to you. Well, she never tied me to a chair. Her loss. Are you sure this is about him? It's about her. And you and me. You see, we are the last two rats. We can either eat each other. Or eat everyone else. How you're trying to remember your training now? What's the regulation to cover this? Well, first time for everything, yes. What makes you think this is my first time? Oh, Mr. Bond. Do you want to hear my idea? Go on. I think it should be Rebecca Ferguson playing the same character as she does in 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 Mission Impossible. So Ilsa Faust from Mission Impossible is recruited to to you know MI5 and becomes 007 and then you can have all sorts of crossover possibilities and and what have you. And you know nothing I mean with with Amazon taking over Eon they're definitely going going to be looking into kind of spin-offs aren't they? And you could be there could be you know endless Bond TV and and character spin-offs uh, coming in the next few years. I think that they're going to be quite cautious about that because Bond is a is a prestige brand in some ways and there's often a lot of online criticism of the Bond estate because they come out with these really high-priced luxury goods a lot of the time especially on the <laughs> yeah. 007 yeah, store. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean personally I would like to see a, a greater variety in the stories. You know, would we ever see a a, a a gay James Bond, a, a black James Bond, a female James Bond. I mean, anyone who's read the latest 007 novel released about a month ago, uh, we've got a black gay and disabled for that matter, James Bond, who is a brilliant character. We've got, not a James Bond, sorry, a double O. We've got a female mm. double O and we've got a Muslim double O. So, I think that's sort of almost like kind of testing the waters about kind of what people might find acceptable. Whether we see that in mm. Bond 26 or whether it takes till Bond 29 to to kind of have more diversity in Bond, um, we'll sure. have to wait and see. Yeah. 
Are you com- are you coming down to any of the Bond at sixty events at the BFI? Yeah, so uh, yeah, we're coming to the. Uh, I'm coming down. My husband actually has to work, sadly, uh, but I'm coming down to uh, the stuff on the first of October. Um, we're doing the cool. stunts, the uh, new music documentary, the premiere at the BFI, and the Living Daylight screening with two of the actors. And then we're going to, um, uh, it's going to kill me probably, but we're going to go to the concert at the Royal Albert Hall on Tuesday. So I'm going to leave nice. work, <laughs> get a train, hopefully, and then get a coach home through the night so I can go to work the next day. <laughs> so that's Bond commitment for you. Hey, listen, you've got to show that you're you're the the, the hardcore Bond uh, enthusiast that you are with actual actions. So uh, yeah. It's a burden, but someone has to carry Indeed. it. Indeed. Listen, David, thanks so much for talking to me i really appreciate it thank you Expecting someone else?